Today we will be reviewing Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 through 25. There are many trials to face when coming upon the introduction of Genesis. This may be truly the single most profound text in the world, with the most meanings yet portrayed in a captivating manner. Of course, there are language barriers and cultural barriers. The text is thousands of years old after all. But there are larger hurdles in that so many people are passionate about the opening of Genesis, that it can prevent us from seeing its beauty with our own eyes and through the lenses of someone else's desires. I hope that God will bless me to do you and this text justice in the message today. I'm Anthony Alegria, and this is Jolton Church of the Nazarene. Let us begin in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, which details the creation of the garden. As the Lord and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. From the beginning of the mention of Eden, we have some detail which will foreshadow the coming events. Trees are made up from the ground, many of which producing attractive fruit, which would appease the appetite of mankind. All these trees have in common that what they produce is attractive and would settle some urge from deep within us, even if that urge is as simple as hunger for some. The phrase in the midst is most often used in the Old Testament to communicate in the middle of, though this is rarely said with any mathematical precision. In the setting of our story, the beautiful abundant home that was made for man, we have at the center the trees of the life and of the knowledge of good and evil. And by extending what we noted previously about the trees, each of these is attractive and would settle some desire within us. Let's pick up in verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to, the, to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. There are many details here which leave the reader wondering, was Eden in a recognizable location to the writer? Where was it? These questions are largely up for debate, but what we may have a good answer for is why is there a seemingly random reference to gold and other precious substances? There are several places in the Bible where holiness and the nature of God is compared to gold, which makes sense in that gold is valuable, beautiful, and cannot be faked. But that does not seem to be that does not seem to be what is taking place here. The message Potamians also had a region known as Eden in their own legends, and their tree of life produced gold and other precious substances. The verse above claims that a place known as Havila is a good place to find gold, but what is more interesting to note here is that the places are clearly distinct from the Garden of Eden. There is a good argument to be made here that the scripture is forming an indirect counterargument or a correction to the Mesopotamian values for life. 
Gold is not the purpose or the end for life, and its value is not supernatural or or godly. The scripture says it is not unique to the holy places, but can be found like any other mineral and adapted for human use. But gold is not holy in itself. It is not set apart, but it is dispersed among the rest of creation. Let's continue in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of any tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. There are three concepts outlined well in each of these three verses. In fact, throughout Genesis, there are many important bundles of three. Here we find three statements about how the world works pertaining to profession, provision, and prohibition. Firstly, the profession. Mankind was meant to work well before the fall of man. Mankind is charged with several purposes throughout creation, a couple of which we have yet to come to. Other translations could easily read, serve and guard, and other variations thereof, for work and keep. Clearly the man was to produce and sustain, a fitting charge for that which is called the image of God, our creator and sustainer. Mankind was created with this image and purpose in mind from the beginning, and that without corruption. Work is not enemy to mankind, but a fulfillment of his nature to conquer the chaos which is present by producing, and to conquer the chaos which is coming by standing guard against it. Next it can be seen that God has clear intentions to provide for mankind. In this perfectly ordered garden, the man works to bring and maintain the order God has created, and God provides for his needs and created desires, a very early covenant between Adam and God. Lastly, there is the prohibition. Mankind shall not claim for themselves knowledge of good and evil. Of this tree we cannot partake. It is interesting to note that God does not say he will kill the man, but the statement suggests that the natural consequence of staking a humanly acquired claim to the knowledge of good and evil is death. But as we know, mankind did not immediately die, so in what way is this statement about how the world works true? Curiosity killed the cat. And because others, specifically Adam and Eve, have suffered the consequences of this, we will see later in chapter 3 in what way we die from claiming to have our own knowledge of good and evil. May God help us to trust and have faith in Him. It is clear from the text, this statement, this prohibition about how the world works, is not made on some arbitrary whim, but out of love for man. Let's return to the text, picking up in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. If one were to fit this creation account into the priestly account of creation in chapter 1 of Genesis, this situation would fall between six good events and the last very good which which marked the completion of creation. Seven is also often the number of completion throughout the whole Bible. It would not be until mankind and not, it would not be until mankind was complete that God would be able to proclaim that the world was complete. All of creation cannot be called good while this mankind was missing a vital piece piece of its existence. 
Something else should be said about the phrase, it is not good. In Hebrew, it is a sort of figure of speech which denotes a sense of impossibility. So long as Adam remained alone, the situation could never rightly be called good. Adam must have some sort of community for his situation to be good. And who or what would constitute a community for Adam? Our translation here is a very traditional English translation, a fit or suitable helper. Further, we were, if we were to look into the word helper, we can find even more, a, an even more clear character for the community Adam was created for. The word translated here as helper occurs 21 times in the Old Testament, 19 times outside of Genesis 2, and it is translated two different ways which are honestly still very similar depending on how they are applied. Eight of these 21 are translated helper with a capital H, which is just to say that these are references to God. Six of these references occur in the Psalms. This Hebrew word for helper certainly does not carry the connotation of subordinate or lower that calling someone a helper in English does at times. Even still, everywhere else in the Bible, this title has been reserved for God. So there may be even an implication of superiority like Savior, according to this way of translating the word. The other way to translate the word is an agent is an agent with strength or power. This occurs the other 11 times of Genesis. It is also connected to the idea of choice or freedom. One way to translate this is as some free powered agent. And this leaves us with a choice ourselves. Is helper or free powered agent closer to the meaning our biblical answer ancestors wanted us to hear. At the end of the day, the best way to think about the word traditionally translated as helper is sovereign power. At times, being the ultimate sovereign power and thereby the best source for help, which is God. Given that everywhere else the title is reserved for God and even carries the implication of superiority, I find it hard to imagine the better translation not being something along the lines of empowered agent. Beyond this, the word suitable or fit in Hebrew is actually two prepositions which are made into one word. Alone, each of them literally mean facing and of the same kind. Together, it means standing equally. After biblical Hebrew, in terms of the development of the language, these words are regularly translated as equal even today. Thus, we can find that the community for Adam needs to be one consisting of members who are sovereign powers, who are equal among, who are his equal among creation. This is further demonstrated in the following verses. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. The beasts of the field and the birds of the air are good creations, and they are worthy to have their own names and to be stewarded righteously. But none of them were considered fit. Something else that's extremely important to consider here is that Adam was charged with the responsibility of naming the creatures. God is working in connection and partnership and with his creation in mind while he is creating others. And why would that be that these other creations were not considered fit? The single real commonality between all these animals 
is that they are beneath Adam, no matter how useful they are, no matter how useful they each could be, such as a horse. They are all they are all still beneath mankind. As we have already come to know, they were given to us for us to live by, to help live, and to protect. We are their stewards, and it is not just for any reason. It is because mankind is capable of much more than they. We are made to represent God to creation as his image, and as such, we have been granted faculties to express his divine and glorious qualities. We are without any shadow of a doubt better than these animals, though this does not mean that we are to be bad stewards over them. Adam has not yet found a sovereign power like himself in these animals. In the following verses, we find a completion worthy to be called very good. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's very, very interesting that God worked in this situation while the man was asleep. Perhaps our biblical ancestors were very much aware of the medical of yeah, were very much aware that medical procedures are much more endurable when one is made to sleep. Perhaps they sought to portray a God of grace and mercy who created more with consideration of his previous creation in mind. What else is interesting is to note that from the first verse is that man cannot always see God working, even though we see the glorious results of his work. In every other context, which is 39 other occurrences of the word for rib, the word for rib is translated as the word side. In 2 Samuel 16, 13, for one of these 39 times, the word is used to refer to the side of a hill. This interpretation is also suggested by the way Adam talks about the woman, Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This is not a huge distinction, but it does paint a slightly different picture for sure and makes the investment on Adam's part much more significant. The excitement Adam portrays to the woman as bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh is certainly unique from the other creatures in Genesis. Adam has no real reason to be interested in them, for they are unlike him and beneath him. But, woman... All he, but in woman, all he can see are similarities which are separate and, in, and independent of himself. He finds community with a sovereign power which proved to be an equal creature. What's more is that the theme of this unity here was pretty radical for its time and even today, though perhaps not for the reason you might think. In the early families of society, all the members of a household remain loyal to their father until his death. Unless a woman was married into another family, then she went to live with her husband and with his father. But strangely, in this account of creation, we, we hear it said that the man leaves his family to be united with his wife. This is an encouragement to seek and become free to produce a new family. It is strange even today in many cultures and our own to consider immediately becoming independent from parents upon marriage. 
But it is even more strange in these early families in society, which cooperated very intergenerationally. But the emphasis is clear. The allegiance of children should be first and foremost to their spouse, even if, be if it becomes necessary to cut former ties with people as close as parents. This unity is also shown that it is an integral part of her creation that the woman was brought to the man. Had they remained separated, God would have simply created an in two incomplete problems instead of a completing solution. Let's pick up in verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What exactly does this last verse of the chapter mean? This is before they had knowledge of good and evil. So does it mean that nakedness is evil? I would argue that with the knowledge of good and evil, all sorts of other knowledge came as well, such as that it is better or more good not to leave oneself vulnerable. And so, in many ways, the knowledge of good and evil also, also comes with reflective self-awareness of one's own vulnerability. As for this place in the scriptures, we do not know how mankind will react to this awareness of good and evil and self-awareness it gives. But we do know at this point that Adam and Eve are not very self-aware. We know that they are with the presence of God and comfortable with him. And they are provided for. We also know that they have, a, that they have purpose as stewards and reflection of God. Freedom a hand in creation, a drive to work, that they were made to be in community, and that they are equal of standing to one another here before the fall. And please note that after the fall, all the goodness of creation is subject to be changed or corrupted. In addition to what we have learned about mankind, there are many, many statements about the world, about how the world works in these verses that we have reviewed. Like many of the trees of the garden, there is much in the world that is attractive to us. It would satiate some desire. But we are called from the beginning to eat only from the trees which would be good for us. There are many trees in the garden which are beautiful and, like the curiosity of the cat, would quench some thirst we may have. But this does not always lead to good things. And we have many desires which seek to rule over us. But as we will see more and more throughout Genesis... It is we who must rule over them. We've also learned by stark contrast that there is more to life than material resources and that the tree of life is not the sole producer of things like gold and materials. I believe we have all heard Jesus' famous phrase, man shall not live by bread alone. Within our very creation account, there are corrections made to those who would believe that life is material things. Our account recognizes that life does, does include the material. But so does Christ in saying, bread alone. The creation account and Jesus both recognize the, that materials are part of life. But true life contains so much more than the natural, but also contains supernatural relationship with our Father in heaven and with one another as he wills for us. Another theme we saw was that God is the creator and the provider or the sustainer. His every motive and inclination is out of holy love. Likewise, as the image of God, we must re remember to reflect these qualities. The last and major theme of the chapter 
was the need for community with others who are empowered like ourselves, a measurement of community that lacks regard for gender as we have seen and as we have seen in the New Testament, the kingdom of God lacks regard for gender, race, or social place in life altogether. With the fall of man, these egalitarian notions were taken out of practice and harmony, in addition to the early covenant of profession and provision between God and mankind. But with the coming of the kingdom of God in the nation of Israel and the advent of Christ, all of creation is in the process of restoration, according to his grace and love and our willingness to participate in it. An interesting direction to take this is that in those who are born again, Christians need to be in community with others who are their sovereign equals. We are born again, and in that recreation, we confess that God has enabled us to love more fully and to have a relationship with him which produces more abundant fruit for ourselves and our neighbor than we could ever do on our own. Mankind has a need of particular community. Just any animals will not do, though there is certainly a common origin and life to be shared with them. But mankind needs a community of sovereign equals. And here I see the need of the believer who has been born again for the church. Apart from the church, we as Christians are incomplete and our, and our situation is incapable of being called good. But as we know, and I've already touched on, God is the blessed Redeemer. Seek Him and His ways, trust in Him, and do not force yourself to learn by experience what it means to decide for yourselves what good and evil are. In chapter 3 of Genesis, we can see the consequences, and they are not worthy of the purpose we are created for.